Welcome to We've Got Issues. I'm Joshua Holland. This week, we're going to be joined by Saul Elbine. He's a staff writer for The Hill uh, to talk about a kind of obscure grievance among Republicans that is being promoted, oh, by the fossil fuel industry and private prison industry and the gun lobby, among other groups. Lots of dark money is behind this, and we'll talk about it. Then we're going to bring you the latest from the terrifying assault on those protesting the so-called Cop City Project in Atlanta. We've covered that story before, and we have a a pretty shocking update to that. But first, what an eventful week. I mean, we're recording this on in the middle of Thursday. Who knows? It's inc- entirely possible that when you listen to this, uh, Donald Trump will have been indicted. The Independent suggested as much, although that's just one report. Um, but it's already been an eventful week. CNN boss Chris Liked was fired after a brief and disastrous reign marked by that um, uh, debacle of a town hall with Donald Trump we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the, the stories we've seen for three years, again, about how Donald Trump is facing imminent indictments seem to have a lot more substance attached to them this week. Because they're constant. Oh, always there's headlines like, ooh, Donald Trump, about to, the hammer's about to fall, right? This week, it eh, seems like maybe there's more to it. Uh, the Department of Justice met with his lawyers, officially notified them that he is a target of their uh, documents investigation. Um, we learned this week that there's a second grand jury hearing testimony in Florida related to that investigation. Um, Jack Smith, that's the special counsel, Jack Smith's uh, second grand jury. Meanwhile, uh, what else happened? So Ukraine's long-anticipated counteroffensive has finally started. Uh, the Russians are the most likely culprit, according to U.S. Uh, intelligence officials, in the destruction of a major dam and flooding of dozens of communities around and south of Kherson. Um, the Human Rights Campaign, the biggest LGBTQ advocacy organization in America, declared a national state of emergency as a result of the uh, rights terror campaign on their community. Um Meanwhile, the House of Representatives is completely blocked by a handful of wingnuts who are furious that their their party's leadership did not push the country into a default on the debt and trigger a, a global recession. So right now, they are unable to pass anything. They were unable to pass a contempt resolution against FBI Director Chris Wray based on one of the right's idiotic conspiracy theories. That's how jammed up they are. Um, and ultimately, uh, Speaker Kevin McCarthy just said, I threw up his hands and just sent everyone home for the rest of the week. We'll see if they can get it together next week. Perhaps the most surprising story this week was the Supreme Court finding by a 5-4 vote that Alabama did indeed violate what's left of the Voting Rights Act uh, when lawmakers very purposefully drew election maps that packed black voters into a single congressional district. So um, they threw out this heavily gerrymandered map. They're going to have to go back to the drawing board. And court watchers were shocked, given that the ruling was authored by Chief Justice John Roberts, who had also authored a decision a decade ago that gutted most of the Voting Rights Act. So it was a big surprise in a sense. But I don't know how surprising it it really is because poll after poll has found that the court's 
legitimacy has been utterly destroyed with this 6-3 majority. Um, they've been dogged by ethics problems, as you know. Uh, they faced scathing editorials about their, you know, decision, about their very partisan decisions. And they've invited massive electoral blowback for their party by overturning overturning Roe v. Wade. So I am surprised by the ruling like everybody else, but I'm not that surprised at efforts to restore some of the court's lost reputation by ruling against Republicans in some of the most egregious cases. And again, they packed, they packed black voters in these ridiculously drawn in this ridiculously drawn district so that they're all in one district or one district where they have a chance to um, exert some, some electoral power. Um, so it was, it was one of those really egregious cases. Uh, and a, a lower court had already ruled that the Alabama, Alabama maps were unconstitutional uh, and the court upheld that ruling. And the court is trying to make it that, you know, political gerrymandering is legal, but racial gerrymandering is illegal, which is a line that you really can't walk, but that's at least where their where their justifications lie. All of this, of course, occurred against a backdrop of orange haze in much of the eastern and central United States as a result of a crazy fire season in Canada. It's really the beginning of the fire season. As I record this, I'm sitting in New York's Hudson Valley. I can taste the smoke. It has been difficult to breathe since Monday. Uh, the air quality at present is considered dangerous to people without underlying health problems. So even if you don't have like a heart disease or lung disease, uh, this is some bad shit. According to the CDC, and I quote, Wild sm wildfire smoke can make anyone sick. Breathing in smoke can have immediate health effects, including coughing, trouble breathing normally, stinging eyes, scratchy throat, runny nose, blah, 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 etc., etc. They list a whole thing, chest pains, headaches, tiredness, accelerated heartbeat. So how is Fox News covering this? Take a quick listen. Look, the air is ugly, it's unpleasant to breathe, and for a lot of people they get uh, anxiety over it. But the reality is there's no health risk. Okay, there's uh, EPA research, they've done lots of clinical research on uh, asthmatics, on elderly asthmatics, on children, on elderly with heart disease, um, not a cough or a wheeze from any of them. We have this kind of air in India and China all the time, um, no public health emergency. Steve, we're back at the masks. <laughs> Ramin Asqui is watching from heaven, by the way. Ramin, I know you are. Go ahead. Yeah, this is crazy. This is all particulate matter, but particulate matter was not a concern until EPA invented it as one in the 1990s, and they've been writing it. You know, the Obama administration, now the Biden administration. Well, what it's is it? Is concern. it a health concern? Part, no, particulate matter is very fine soot. Um, the, well, you don't want to be breathing that just, in all well, day. They're just carbon particles. They're innocuous. Okay, by them, they're innocuous. There's nothing in them. Uh, they have no effect. The EPA has all this testing on real live human beings that shows no effect. So they're uh, they're telling you you should be happy to breathe deeply of wild smart, wildfire smoke to um, to own the libs. Um, they're basically telling their geriatric audience that it's woke to not like to uh, to not enjoy, you know, sucking in orange tinged caustic smoke. Their capacity to just deny reality they find inconvenient is always kind of impressive to me. 
And remember, folks, this is the same network that tells you that trans girls participating in scholastic sports is a huge problem in this society, a huge problem. One of the leading organizations trying to ban girls from participating in scholastic sports could only find five trans girls playing uh, middle or, or high school sports in the whole country. Five. I've said this before. There's more laws banning girls from trans girls from playing sports than there are trans girls playing sports. Uh, it's hard to get an accurate count, but the Associated Press um, could only find 15 trans kids playing in scholastic sports in North Carolina when it passed its bill, but 13 of the 15 were trans boys. So they were kids who were assigned female at birth playing with the guys, which is a category of, of person that right-wingers just ignore uh, for various reasons. It doesn't, doesn't fit with their, their narrative. Anyway, um, we're going to take a quick break and then come right back with Saul Elbine. Stay tuned. And it's so quiet outside with this And we are back. You know, one of the problems with the siloing that marks our current media landscape, which, by the way, research shows is especially prevalent on the right, uh, among those who identify as, quote, very conservative, is that if you are closer to the center, if you're center right, center left, or a person of the left, you may not even know what they're pissed off about at any time. Um, a criticism, in fact, that we've been hearing quite a bit about Ron DeSantis's uh, nascent presidential campaign is that he tends to focus on issues that you have to be very online and, and really have some awareness of uh, what the right-wing media is cover covering to know what he's talking about. That's often the case with him. And I think the topic of our next segment is an example of this dynamic. You may be you know, somewhat aware of what ESG is. Um, or maybe you've never heard of it, but your right-wing uncle on Facebook, uh, the guy who shares those like you know offensive memes on Facebook, he's outraged and frightened by it, and red state governments are coming for it. Here now to help us figure out what's going on is Saul Elbine. Saul is a staff writer for The Hill, and he's written a couple pieces recently about the campaign against ESG. Saul, welcome to We've Got Issues. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me. Um, what is ESG? Let's begin at the beginning. So ESG is investing. Uh, it's the idea that there are things that we should be considering other than pure price uh, in the investments that we make. So the, the acronym itself stands for environment or environmental, social, and governance funds. 
It's the idea that there are these three areas that have traditionally been left off of balance sheets that when they go wrong can blow up a company. And I think a great example of this, conservatives always want to talk about the climate examples, but the G for governance is very important too. And the great example there from my lifetime is Enron. Enron had very bad governance and they made a lot of money for a while. And if you just had looked at their money and their financials, you would have thought that you were in good hands investing with them. But there were a lot of these qualitative problems with the way that um, Lay and Skilling were running that company. And the idea is, you know, if you can identify things like that ahead of time, you may or may not make more money year on year. That's arguable. Um, but you can very likely avoid catastrophe, which could see you know, the value of a company collapse. Right. Um, and, and, and as you suggested, you, know, you said that your right-wing uncle is, is mad about that. And I'm actually, I'm not sure if the right-wing uncles are actually mad about that. I'm not sure if this has succeeded in getting the level of purchase on the very online right that like, CRT, you know, critical race theory, or DEI, you know, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion have. Although those things are related. What's I think more interesting about ESG is that there has been an attempt to make a culture war issue out of this extremely arcane um, financial uh, practice, not extremely arcane, but to the life of most Americans arcane, um, that most people generally aren't thinking about. And it's not clear to me if it's working, but they are trying really, really hard. Yeah, we're going to come back to the messaging that they're using uh, in a minute or two, because it's very interesting, I think. Um, but you wrote that there is a campaign to legislate, I don't know if it's ESG out of existence or pressure um, companies to not to, to avoid factoring uh, environmental, social responsibility and governance out of their um, financial, uh, their investment decision making. Um, and this has begun very quietly but has been picking up steam quickly in GOP circles. Can you talk a little bit about what kind of legislative approaches we're seeing? And I, I realize I may be putting the cart before the horse here. We will get back to the kind of groups that are pushing these laws in a second, but I just want to take a moment to figure out what's going on out there. What's, what makes this a little bit hard to answer is that it's not entirely clear um, from proposal to proposal what they're actually pushing for. But, but what we've seen is almost 20... Uh, GOP-controlled state legislatures have pushed laws that in varying ways ban companies from doing business in their state that uh, they would say discriminate against companies, which really means if you have a, if you have an investment company that is reluctant about investing in companies that don't report their carbon emissions. You wouldn't be able to do business, for example, in the state of Texas. If you are have a diversity requirement for the companies that you invest in, um, you probably wouldn't be able to do business in you know, Kentucky or Florida. Now, these things aren't very well um, explained, and it's a real question how much they're even supposed to do anything uh, real at all. Um, much like the bans we've seen against diversity, equity, and inclusion, it ends up being a ban on essentially the three letters ESG and consideration of ESG. But does that mean, for example, a bank that prices in climate risk when they offer a loan to a fossil fuel company, can they not do business in the state of Texas? We really don't know. We, we, we really just don't know. Yeah. Uh, among the bills that have advanced um, to the point where they can be rated, um, the, the most popular seems to be just banning state and local pension from, funds from investing with 
uh, investment managers and investment management companies that factor in ESG um, ESG considerations. I just want to take a moment here to point out that at least for public pension plans, uh, going anti-woke, is, which is how they would put it, can actually help you go broke. Reuters reported in February that the Indiana Legislative Services Agency, which is somewhat like the Congressional Budget Office, it evaluates the um, kind of economic impact of legislation. They found that that state's proposed anti-ESG legislation could, and I quote, cut investment returns for the Indiana public retirement system by $6.4 billion for defined benefit funds over the next 10 years. Um, a note uh, issued by Kansas's division of the budget projected that their anti-ESG bill would cost the state pension $3.6 billion over the next 10 years. And the executive director of the Texas County and District Retirement System warned that the Lone Star State's bill would shave off $6 billion from the fund he manages. And to be clear, these are all red states, and at least in Texas, they don't have anyone doing ESG for their pension fund. The reason these funds are projected to lose returns is that these laws would bar them from working with most of the leading investment management companies in the financial industry. Okay, so I just want to set that baseline of reality. Um, there are, these have been very similar bills popping up in, in various red state legislatures. Let's talk about some of the actors behind this push to ban socially responsible investing. I, I should mention that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is leading a group of 18 red state governors devoted to banning uh, socially responsible investing in state and local investment funds and other actions. Uh, you wrote about a group called the State Financial Officers Foundation. Can you tell us a little bit about them? Yeah, they're a very conservative group of uh, Republican state financial officers. And if you kind of want to get a tenor of, of what is coming out of there these days, uh, you could look at the, um, the language that was used by the Florida State Financial Officer when uh, DeSantis passed or when, when the Florida legislature passed and DeSantis signed the anti-ESG bill there. Which, by the way, you ask what this is going to do. It seems like all it says is, generally, if you have an ESG policy, you can't do business with us. Which, well, you know, like the bans of DEI with universities, like that's just what the finance, what, what big finance has now. If you don't have, if you have ESG, you're in big finance and vice versa. So you just sort of can't do business with Florida. So the way that, um, so this is a pretty, this is a, it's a pretty aggressive thing to do. You know, if you're for those policy aims, maybe it's worthwhile, but it's aggressive. And so the way that, that um, the Florida state financial officer defended this was woke Wall Street wants to stand with Dylan Mulvaney and the Chinese Communist Party. Like, <laughs> this is like a serious elected official, right? Like, yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, this, yeah. Is, this is like, you know, you're sort of your Facebook uncle thing. I don't know so, if it's a serious elected official, but it is an elected official. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's a public <laughs> official. It's like it's somebody, yeah, okay. it's somebody that you, you expect to at least perform a certain degree of seriousness. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and so who's behind this? I mean, I think you, you've really put your finger on it because there's the game and then there's sort of the meta game. And the game that's being played, you know, as in America is this discourse about freedom and, you know, what you have a right to do and what the government can make you do and the First Amendment and compelled speech. And why aren't we having that conversation? But I mean, you know, who's behind it? Like the private prison industry, the gun industry and the fossil fuel industry is afraid that it's going to become harder for them to get loans, period, the end. That's what, I mean, that's what's driving this. It, it, it is, there's an element of kayfabe in pretty much everything in Washington where nobody can quite cop to what they're doing. But 
in the, the hearing that happened a couple of days ago, the House Oversight Committee had another anti-ESG hearing. You could kind of, the Democrats came right up to the line of saying it. They kept saying, why are we doing this? What, what do you guys actually want? You know, they were they say when you don't have when you can't pound on the evidence, pound on the table. Well, GOP members were pounding on the table, talking about how this thing is an assault on America, never quite saying what they actually wanted. And I think what they want is a legal requirement that fossil fuel companies will always be able to get cheap money, period. Yeah. Um, by the way, Saul has a piece of the hill about that about that hearing. It's it's an interesting one. Um, this was a, a the piece came out on Tuesday. Was it a hearing on Monday? That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so it was basically the, the thing here is that the, the interesting thing that I found about that piece is that, you know, it had Democrats calling out Republicans for being hypocrites for saying that they're free market, they're for the free markets and individual choice, while at the same time condemning this thing that is being driven primarily by market forces. And um, Katie Porter, who is always good for a quote, called it the quote stupidest hearing I've ever been to. You can check that out at the Hill. Um, no, that was the first. That was the first one. Was the stupidest. Oh, she was yes. like, the last one was the first one. This is part two. What's going on, guys? Yeah. Hopefully, we won't have a part three. Um, so you had this group. Let's just get back to the State Financial Officers Foundation. What is its connection to Alec? That's the American Legislative Exchange Council. This kind of venerable conservative group that makes model legislation, which it then advocates for in state legislature. I mean, they go to the same parties, you know, they're on the same boards, they know each other, they, they, they kind of want the same things. Uh, I mean, the, the, um, uh, the sort of, it's not quite a smoking gun, but the, the common thread here was a white paper that was written by the Texas Public Policy Foundation, which is a very conservative think tank based out of Austin, which is very, very pro-oil. Um, they were working with the, one of the major West Virginia coal companies to pass the first anti-ESG legislation in the West Virginia legislature in, I believe, 2021, which failed, although they eventually did manage to pass something. But in that white paper, you see the beginning of a rhetorical argument that has just only gotten stronger since then, which is the ESG is an attack on freedom. And it's a, it's a sort of a complex argument because, first off, it's an attack on people's ability to not be compelled to state their carbon emissions. It's like maybe it's compelled speech. It's an attack on your ability to maybe not think about these things. You know, the, the sort of the freedom argument, which we can get deeper into, mixes with a purported economic argument, which is this idea that ESG funds a priori do worse. And systemically, they have kept the fossil fuel industry from being able to access capital, which has driven up oil prices, you know, which is obviously, you know, hurting, you know, very unfair, hurting, hurting the poorest Americans. And that all of this is essentially the big money managers of the world are taking a deliberate loss to the funds under their control, which are pension funds and whatnot, because they are so polluted by, you know, the Bidenist woke ideology. Like, I mean, it sounds like I'm making fun of them, but that's literally what they're saying. Um, yes. In the hearing the other day, there was some dispute over whether it was the European elites or the Chinese elites that were driving this, but there was consensus that it was some sort of nefarious foreign elite. Yeah. I mean, this is the kind of governance by conspiracy theory that we've been seeing increasingly in red state legislatures. Um, just one other note, Bloomberg reported that a little known group called Consumer Research, really benign name, um, they've been targeting individual portfolio managers for embracing ESG. They've been 
taking out ads and highlighting individual people, which of course leads to uh, harassment and the like. This group is funded in large part, or perhaps entirely, I don't know, by Leonard Leo, who may not be a household name, but was an instrumental player in the rights judicial wars. And um, as the head of the Federalist Society for many years, he helped push the Supreme Court to the far right. He recently got the biggest political donation in history to fund a network of dark money groups. And I think this is one of them. Uh, and I just want to point out that I think most people closer to the center of the political spectrum would think that this kind of, of disclosure of basic risk, climate risk, gun risk, etc., is a pretty modest approach to these issues, right? And a conservative approach, free market conservative approach. And um, as you said, this is kind of being kind of folded into Republican fear mongering about wokeness, which they never define as become this kind of catch all for things they don't like. Um, and they've also called it reverse discrimination and censorship. Um, Saul, I assume there is a pretty robust market among investors for investments that require disclosure of companies' social impact. Is that right? Well, it's a little more complicated than that. So Shiva Ram Rajgopal, who's a business uh, business school professor, sorry, a Columbia business school professor, who was on the Senate on, it was Tuesday, not Monday, um, and who I've interviewed a few times, he, he said, you know, one of the reasons why this is ridiculous is that nobody actively manages funds. Like the idea that, you know, so your, your, your stockbroker is like, Picking this and like throwing that out, like nobody does that. The amount of of labor, the amount of the additional labor costs, um, doesn't get covered by the additional gains. So what most funds do is they just track the market. Now you could get, you could invest in an ESG fund to just track the ESG funds in the market, but nonetheless, like there there is no person sort of making these choices. So. What, there's a sort of fundamental incoherence in the Republican position, and it's that they love to say anybody can invest in ESG. We're all, it's free market, anybody can invest in anything they want. But the question is, well, how do you get the information that you need to invest in that? Because they also essentially want to make it legally risky at best to, uh, to give your carbon emissions, and they absolutely want to make it impossible for any federal agency to require companies to do that. So it's like saying, you know, in, in a world where the SEC doesn't mandate other financial disclosures, you know, you say you can vote based on your values, but it's a trade secret how a company actually, what values a company actually has. You know, it's, it's, it's not your business, you know, what to make a company tell you what their financials are. That's compelled speech. And that's essentially what we're talking about, right? They're saying you have the freedom to invest, but you do not have the freedom to know what you're investing in. We admit that you can invest based on your values, but we won't require disclosure of the metrics that would allow you to actually do that. Yeah. And so Katie Porter's ultimate conclusion, and I think it summed it up really nicely, is she was like, guys, what am I missing here? Like, I also want to, want to encourage things I like and discourage things I don't like. It seems like we all do. That's what I keep hearing from the other side. So what's the actual problem here? And no one was able to really answer her. And I think that sort of gives it away that it wasn't really about that. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we should just note that this is going on while there is this massive moral panic and harassment and intimidation campaign against companies like Target that are uh, too, quote, woke. So, I mean, this is, um, the timing of it is very interesting. And so the real question, will this work? We don't know if this will work. They're, they're making a real strong play on this and on the tram stuff, but it's not clear that people actually care or that this will actually work for them. Anyway. Yeah, that's true. 
That is true. I mean, you've seen funny that the support for the LGBT community community has remained pretty much pretty high across the ideological spectrum, despite this this massive campaign. And as you say, the anti-ESG campaign is a little bit in the weeds, and I think most people, uh, you know, nor- normal people, haven't. Try to get somebody. Try to get somebody worked up about woke money managers. Like, please. <laughs> <laughs> the rise goes over. Saul Elbine, I, I believe we're out of time, but I really want to thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it, folks. Stay mad. We're going to take a quick break and then come right back. Welcome back. A couple of months ago, I think in March, we covered the really hair-raising suppression of protests against the construction of the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center, uh, more commonly known as Cop City. This is the sprawling police training center that they're building down in a forest in uh, in Atlanta, in a in a in a forest that's bat- bordered by all these. Um, uh, communities of color. Uh, it's sparking a lot of outrage. We spoke back then to the intercepts Natasha Leonard about the seemingly indiscriminate arrests of protesters and um, really ridiculous charges brought against some of them. Uh, one protester was killed by police in really dubious circumstances. Um, a lot of activists would say in cold blood. And I mentioned during that show that the daughter of a friend of my family was arrested and is facing domestic terrorism charges. And I Touch base with her mom last week, and the, the whole family is terrified of what's happened, of what happens next. Um, and it's, you know, there's a kind of an air of uh, suppression um, you know, that's coming from authorities, from local authorities, from police officials, politicians, et cetera, et cetera. I'm joined now by Matt Scott of the Atlanta Community Press Collective to get an update about that campaign and the backlash against it. Matt, welcome to We've Got Issues. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Um, who are Marlon Scott Couts, Adele McLean, and Savannah Patterson, and what happened to them the week uh, before last? Yeah, so uh, they are three organizers who are responsible for a series or a, a group of, um, of mutual aid organizations. But the one in particular that we're uh, looking at today or we'll be talking about today is the Atlanta Solidarity. Uh, the Atlanta Solidarity Fund was formed in 2016 and supports protesters and, and the right to free speech in the in Atlanta and the surrounding area. Really, Georgia at large, uh, they make themselves available to. So since 2016, uh, they've been providing uh, bail funds and also legal assistance uh, or 
paying for legal assistance for anyone arrested uh, engaging in First Amendment activities. Uh, of course, their their work significantly increased in 2020 with the George Floyd uprising and then continued to increase uh, over the last uh, year and some change now with the uh, Stop Cop City campaign and the arrests that have happened uh, throughout the process uh, related to that. And, and what happened? What happened to them the week before last? Oh, sorry. So on uh, May 31st, uh, it's, been a, it's been a long week, but on May 31st, they, uh, there is a uh, joint uh, raid with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation and the Atlanta Police Department. It was a SWAT raid uh, on the Atlanta Police Department's end, uh, complete with a, an armored vehicle that pulled up to their house. It's called the Teardown House. Uh, it's in a little neighborhood called Edgewood, a residential neighborhood called Edgewood. Uh, and bashed in the door uh, and woke them up while they were sleeping, arrested them in their pajamas, and took them to DeKalb County Jail, where, uh, where they were held and they were charged with charity fraud and money laundering uh, related to their activities uh, as the Atlanta Solidarity. And when we talk about a solidarity fund, that's commonly also known as a bail fund. And, and just so listeners know, these are groups, they're very important, they provide not only bail, cash bail for, you know, um, in, in areas that require cash bail, but also legal advice, uh, prison services, uh, transitional services, et cetera, et cetera. Now, Matt, I've seen legal observers arrested at protests once or twice. I don't think any of them were actually charged, right? There was this police chief, very famous, named John Timoney. He was infamous for suppressing uh, for illegally suppressing First Amendment protests. And he used to say, you can beat the rap, but you can't beat the ride. That was like his slogan. And what he meant was that his officers would make arrests knowing that no charges would stick, but it would get people arrested and it would cause them a bunch of hassle and aggravation and get them off the streets. It was a form of harassment. That's not the case here. Um, and these folks are you know, board members of the Atlanta Solidarity Fund. Uh, you mentioned that they're being charged with um, with fraud, with charity fraud and money laundering. It seems like this action shocked people who have long studied and reported on police crackdowns on protests, people who are pretty jaded and have seen a lot of abuses. Have we seen anything like this before with SWAT teams busting down doors of people who are raising money to help people who've been arrested at protests? Uh, this is the first time, in my knowledge, that I am aware of a SWAT team uh, raiding a nonprofit who uh, provides bail support. Um, but I do want to mention that uh, you, you talked about legal observers uh, not getting charged. And, and the March 5th arrests uh, that happened, one of the 23 people who was charged with domestic terrorism was a legal observer. And a, he also is a lawyer for the Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, he was wearing his National Lawyer Guilds hat that uh, showed him as a as a legal observer, and they did not dismiss those charges. So uh, we are seeing some pretty extreme use of charging uh, in in this case, and in, in really anything related to the, the city protests. Yeah, I'm. I, I I think that's a. I'm glad that you mentioned that because that arrest was especially egregious. Um, you know, they you have basically a lawyer, a uh, civil rights lawyer being arrested and charged with domestic terror. This is the same charges that 
um, uh, two, close to two dozen protesters were charged with. They weren't actually at the site of any vandalism or violence, right? Or a number of them were not. Uh, correct. They, they All of the arrests took place at a music festival or very nearby to a music festival, uh, which is about uh, three quarters of a mile as, as the proverbial crow flies from the site of uh, the construction uh, of Cop City that, that was uh, fortunate and vandalized that day. And the arrests happened about an hour, started happening, I should say, about an hour after the events at the construction site. So two, you know, very different areas. Uh, and what what is reported to be very indiscriminate arrest that took place uh, around the music festival. I would like to say that it's hard to imagine these charges sticking, even in America, but at this point, it's hard to say. Can, can you connect this kind of really egregious assault on free speech, or I, I should put that in plural, these really egregious assaults on free speech, with some of the rhetoric you're hearing from... Uh, local police, uh, politicians, all the way up to kind of Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, who I think has gained an unearned reputation as a moderate when he rejected Trump's election fraud claims. How does that kind of feed into an environment where a judge would sign off on a SWAT raid on bail fund organizers or they or, 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 you know, sign off on charging them with money laundering and fraud or sign off on charging random protesters who were arrested somewhere close to an act of vandalism with domestic terror. Yeah, so we, we first hear the term environmental terrorist or environmental terrorism uh, back in May of 2022 uh, at a community stakeholder advisory committee by one of the members of this, this committee that is you know, supposed to oversee or be the civilian oversight of, of the construction of Capital City. And then uh, the term continues to be thrown around, but not really uh, applied legally until it's, it's late in 2022 and about November, that's when we first hear uh, sort of more state level actors between you know, Governor Kemp and uh, Attorney General Chris Carr start to use this term. And then of course, the, the first series of domestic terrorism charges come out in December of, of 2022. Um, on a local level, uh, local politicians have been reticent to use the, the word terrorist, uh, but they are certainly uh, using other coded language. They are frequently invoking the the outside agitators narrative um which you know in, in atlanta in the the seat of the civil rights movement is is a quite ironic term to be throwing around uh, as much as they do but all yeah. of this is creating you know an environment that that led to uh the the dhs uh starting to use the term domestic violent extremists uh in relation to the facility and now there's, you know, uh, there's national pushback. Uh, Senator Warnock just uh, sent a letter to DHS, I believe it was yesterday, uh, kind of questioning uh, how they are applying that term and how that term came to be applied in particular to to the Stop City movement. Uh, but a lot of these these warrants and charges have been kind of based around around that that designation, and it has been brought up in bail hearings and in, in preliminary hearings. So a lot of it comes, uh, you know, from that charged language, from that charged nature, and then filtered on up to DHS, which is now continued to, to be the, the reason uh, that prosecutors are using to, to uh, apply these charges to those arrested in, in relation to uh, top city protests. 
Yeah, um, it's um, it's a really heated environment down there right now. Before I let you go, I just want to ask you about the status of the movement against Cobb City. This week, the uh, Atlanta City Council authorized uh, $66 million for the project, half now, have to be paid out over years to cover uh, the debt. As we discussed with Natasha back in, I think it was March, uh, the project is being overseen by this police, um, uh, what is it called? The, the, the Atlanta Police Foundation. Atlanta Police Foundation, and they're actually running up the debt. Uh, and I should also add that the project is now expected to cost twice as much as it was estimated when they proposed it in 2021 at the height of the racial justice protests. There is a common question of like why they're so intent on pushing this project through over opposition of the community. But Matt, what I want to ask is uh, what is the movement's response to this week's vote authorizing the funds? Yeah, so yesterday uh, there was an announcement of a referendum campaign. And I should say uh, the referendum campaign wasn't quite in response to the, the passing of this funding package. The referendum campaign has been in the works even before uh, I, we released a story that, that you know, informed everyone that this, this vote was going to take place. Uh, so, but the referendum campaign uh, launched yesterday and they will have uh, you know, about 60 days uh, to collect 75,000 signatures, uh, and if they're successful in doing so, they will put an actual ballot measure uh, on the November 7th uh, voting day uh, in order to uh, allow basically a straight up or down vote um, whether or not the city of Atlanta wants to, to lease this property to the Atlanta Police Foundation. If it succeeds, then then the lease would be automatically canceled. Uh, in the interim, uh, the organizers of the referendum campaign believe that they will be able to get injunctions to, to stop uh, the continued construction of the facility. And then in addition to that, you know, so that's the sort of uh, electoral side of things. And then there's the more direct action side of things. Uh, so at the end of the month, uh, June 24th through July 1st, uh, this will have their sixth week of action. So that's a week of protest, uh, of learning about the forest and and community events uh, surrounding, you know, the, the larger uh, Defend the Forest or Stop Cop City movement. Matt, Scott, I believe we're about out of time. I really want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us about this. Yeah, absolutely. Glad to be here. Friends, Matt's with the Atlanta Community Press Collective, which you can check out and or support at atlpresscollective.com. If you want to support the Atlanta Solidarity Fund, you can do so at atlsolidarity.com. O-R-G. Folks, a quick programming note at the end of this month, after I guess four years and close to 200 episodes, we'll be doing our final podcast. I don't think it will be my final podcast, but I will probably take a break for a while, perhaps until the election. And then we'll see. I may relaunch under a listener supported Patreon model kind of thing. I don't know how many of you would kick in a few bucks for the show, but maybe enough. Enough to keep the lights on, enough to pay for the uh, the music license, etc., etc. You can drop me a note if you know of any sponsors you might take on the show. The email is politicsandreality at gmail.com. Um, and I'd like to thank Alternet and Ross Story for supporting the show over the years. Of course, I'd like to thank David Edwards for producing and engineering it. And I'd also like to thank all of you for tuning in. We've got a few more shows to come, so... Please keep tuning in until the end of the month and have a terrific week. Strangers on this road we are on.
We are not two, we are one.